a music stand, and I found a bottle of water there. I can have a little drinky, found tissues, can have a cry if I need to. And what is that? It's perfume. What do I do with that? Oh, okay, okay, all right. Bit of anointing, it probably is, it probably is. That's cool, that's great. Well, well done for getting here, guys. And um, be honest, did anyone turn up to the showground and then? Ah, good on you, Elizabeth, well done. And there's probably others who turned up there and went, oh, go home. Well done for coming. And um, get your Bibles open there, guys, and we will... Um, We'll, we'll just move on into this next passage here in chapter 19 of Acts. And uh, yeah, feeling grateful, and I hope you are too. I hope you're feeling comfy. How comfy are these seats? Good. I saw on YouTube recently some, you know, young guys have these YouTube channels where they do crazy things, so everyone follows them. And they were doing this thing, which I'd seen other people do before, which is, I think they called the game, I'm going to get all the words wrong, I'm old, but anyway, this is what, I think they called the game Catch Me. And the idea was they had this pact, and when it was on, um, you could run at your friend and launch yourself in front of him and say, catch me, and they needed to catch you with two arms, right? And, and, and so the idea was you wait till your mate's got himself a nice cup of coffee or something, then you just run at him and launch yourself, and he's got to... Chucky's coffee to catch you because it takes two arms to catch a man in motion, doesn't it? And then, and sometimes there's a burger and anyway, there's, and I've and I've seen people play that game before. In fact, I've played it myself, and it's a funny game until the person actually doesn't use two hands or two arms to catch the person. That's where the game goes badly, and that's where the person gets punished. And I was thinking about that game and that concept, the idea of needing to use two hands or two arms to catch someone properly. And um, I got that image in my mind as we come to this passage here tonight, as we think about what it means to turn to Jesus and put your trust in him and receive him and follow him. I think there's a picture here of um, the concept of it, it requiring both of your hands. In fact, both of your arms. It requires dropping what might currently be there in order to take hold of Jesus properly. Now, Jesus doesn't run and launch himself at you, but he kind of does by his spirit. He comes for you. But to receive him requires all of you, all that you've got, both arms, both hands. Last week, um, we did this. This is kind of bouncing a little bit for me, guys. Is that, you getting that too? Is it the level? Do you want to pull it down a touch? Is that better? Um, do, do you know that imagery we used last week, if you were here with us, of the concept of turning to Jesus? And if Jesus is here, and the life of just going after the opposite of Jesus, the life of sin is here, first you need to repent. And we talked about that concept of turning away from sin, but needing to keep turning the whole way towards Jesus. And, and, and these people, you know, these fo early followers of Jesus who seem to be following the way of John the Baptist, they seem to have got the repentance thing down pat, turn away from sin. But they hadn't yet turned the whole way and received the Holy Spirit and put their trust in Jesus. And they needed to turn all the way to Jesus. And hopefully some of you still got that in your minds after last week. And you've been thinking, hey, have I turned the whole way to face Jesus and receive him in full? 
This week, I've got a slightly different image for you, and it's the concept of this. If you're a Christian, you understand yourself to be a person who's turned the whole way to Jesus, and you've received him. But here's what we do sometimes. We turn all the way to him, we put our trust in him, but there's one arm behind us, and it's stretching back in the opposite direction, and it's still got hold of something. It's got hold of something from your old belief system. It's got, so it's got hold of something from your old life, your old way of doing things. The things you used to find security in and hope in and confidence in, we turn to Jesus. But sometimes we can still have these other things that we're gripping onto. It's almost like an insurance policy. If this Jesus thing doesn't work out, well, I've still got these things in my life. And if you can just have that picture in your mind, that it's possible to turn to Jesus, but actually still have one arm behind you, clinging to other things, things you're yet to let go of. You're yet to actually just remove from your life and embrace him fully. And I wonder whether even as I just act that out and give you that image, some of you already are thinking in your mind, yeah, I know what my thing is. I know what I'm still holding on to. I know what part of my belief system is still pretty secular, pretty pagan. And I know there's an area where I haven't fully let go yet and turned from. Um, This is what we're going to think about tonight. How do you spot things in your life that you're still hanging on to? And what does it mean to let go and fully embrace Jesus? These Christians in Ephesus are a good example for us here because they came to this very realisation and realised they needed to confess and let go. And as we look at their story and see how they did it and the courage that it took and the sacrifice that it took, I want you to be considering what yours might be. You see, what happens here for the believers here in Ephesus is they've got this one hand still attached to their old pagan beliefs. You see, in Ephesus, it was a classic, you know, Greek pagan worshipping city and there was a lot of superstition and idol worship and black magic going on in that city. And a number of them had recently turned and become Christians because of Paul's preaching and teaching in the area. But they were yet to let go of all their old beliefs. It's called syncretism, by the way. When you come to believe in Jesus, but you end up just kind of mixing it in with your existing belief. And you haven't yet figured out what you need to let go of. That's what's happening for these new believers in Ephesus. They realise their beliefs that they're still hanging on to. They realize the folly of it. They end up confessing their sin and doing it publicly. And then they have this burning of their scrolls. I mean, if you've looked at this passage throughout the week, it's a really graphic image. They literally have a bonfire in the streets where they burn the articles of their old belief, their old pagan, secular, superstitious, Um, sorcery kind of books they have a bonfire and they burn their scrolls and it's a it's a beautiful powerful graphic costly image and I'm trusting it's going to be helpful for you tonight if you can consider you know what might your scroll be you know what is still in your hand that you're hanging on to that you need to let go of and burn What still needs to be burned? And the concept of burning something is to rid it of yourself completely. It's to have it extinguished and it's gone and doesn't have power over you anymore. 
What's your scroll? What do you still need to burn? Let's follow this story and be encouraged and challenged by it and then consider for ourselves what it might be that you're still hanging on to, that you're yet to burn. You pick it up there in verse 8 and Paul is in Ephesus and he's doing his typical pattern where he starts with the Jews and he preaches in the synagogue first. And you can see that there in verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue, which is the Jewish temple where all the teaching would happen. Um, And he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And so this is what Paul does. He goes into an area and he teaches And he teaches boldly, he doesn't pull punches, and he argues persuasively, he uses good logic and good reason, and he does everything he can to persuade people about the gospel of Jesus. It's described here as the kingdom of God, teaching about the kingdom of God. And when it's described that way, that doesn't mean he's not teaching about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. What it means is it's just one of the variety of ways of describing the apostles' teaching. It actually helps us understand the broader implications of the gospel. Paul is continuing to teach about Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And he's trying to help people in this city understand what that means for their whole community and what it means for the whole of creation. Because there is a king over all of creation and and Jesus has come as the Messiah. And so as Paul is teaching in the synagogue, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, was, was to teach that people that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who's come to restore God's kingdom. And to do that actually involves reconciling all of creation back to its creator. It's a big message to preach. It's the message of the Bible. Um, and, and, and he would have spoken about how Jesus, when he came, there was a powerful defeat over the enemy of the kingdom of God. That is the enemy of sin. And the way Jesus defeats the enemy is actually to go willingly to his own death and take the enemy of sin upon himself and die with it. And in that moment, deal with the sin of the world, your sin, my sin. Um, And then he's raised again from the dead and, and ascended back into heaven that the world would recognize he is Lord and he is king. And his kingdom has come. And the message of teaching about Jesus involves calling all of creation to recognize their king and bow their knee and come into the kingdom of God by recognizing Jesus and his lordship. And just right off the bat, I I can't help but to say if you're new to this or if you've been around for a long time, the question really here is, have you received Jesus as your king? Have you come into his kingdom and bowed your knee before him as the Lord? Have you recognized the kingdom of God and how he rules and reigns and how you exist for his glory? And if you bowed the knee and repented of your sin and received him as your Lord? And that might actually be the question you need to consider tonight and spend time thinking about. This is what Paul is preaching in Ephesus. But we get told that what accompanies his teaching and preaching is, is something pretty radical. Oh, in fact, I've skipped a verse. So look at verse 9. The response to the teaching that Paul is doing in this city is that some of them were, became obstinate, they refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way, which was typical of the response. Some would receive, some would reject, and, and when there's been enough rejection, Paul decides to move from the synagogue to another public place so he can keep teaching. And so he goes and he rents this lecture hall called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. We don't know much about him. That word literally means the tyrant. 
So either he was the guy who owned the hall or he was a teacher who had students and, he, and maybe they named him the tyrant, we don't know. But he, anyway, somehow Paul got access to this hall and was renting it or maybe he got it for free because this tyrant had actually believed in the message of Jesus and let them use it. Either way, Paul goes into this public space, this hall, this showground, this exhibition centre in the middle of town and he preaches for two years so that basically everyone in the region gets the chance to come and listen, gets the opportunity to hear the gospel. Um, And verse 10, you know, he spends two years there. But look at what accompanies his teaching during this time. It's something quite particular and spectacular, really. Look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits had left them. So Paul, at the same time as teaching powerfully, what accompanies his teaching is miracles of healing and exorcism. And that actually would have been very helpful in the city of Ephesus because they were very interested in healings and exorcisms. So to help them pay attention to the teaching of Paul, this is what accompanies his teaching. And it's pretty spectacular. Not only did he wasn't even, he he didn't even need to go up to a person and pray for them or lay his hands on them. Um, There was just like a handkerchief that had touched him somehow and people would run off with the handkerchief and they would bring it and there was healings happening that way. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, it reminds you, doesn't it, of Jesus when he was in the crowd and um, someone comes and just touches the hem of his cloak and they get healed. Just by, it, it's, I think that's part of the imagery that's being passed on here. What Paul is doing here is in the line of Jesus. He's teaching the same message of Jesus. It's the mission of Jesus continuing and it's being accompanied by some of the very same miracles. And it's spectacular. Now, you might hear this and you might kind of fall to one of two extremes you can fall to one extreme where you just want to dismiss this kind of crazy miraculous stuff and think I doubt it you know I've never seen anything like that and how would an apron or a handkerchief heal a person so you I want to encourage you to avoid the extremes of the response here one extreme is to just dismiss this kind of stuff and just say that's silly probably never happened probably never can happen The other end of the extreme is to think, okay, well, because this happened, we need to mimic this today and expect this to be happening regularly and expect it to be happening for all Christians all the time to to authenticate gospel teaching. I want to encourage you to avoid both those extremes and avoid feeling like you need to mimic it because Paul makes it really clear uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, that these miracles and signs that are performed in this region are performed particularly to accredit him as an apostle and as people would have seen these miracles they would have thought that's similar to the miracles that we saw with the apostle Peter this guy Paul must be a genuine apostle in the line of Peter and in the line of Jesus and so Paul says this accredits me as an apostle and so particularly these types of miracles doesn't mean they can't happen today but I think they are accrediting him On top of all that, I just think it's helpful for these miracles to happen in a city like Ephesus. Yep. In a culture that's superstitious, they're obsessed with powerful displays of spiritual things um, over evil spirits. They're obsessed with sorcery and magic. And they hold in high regard people who seem to be able to perform these signs regularly. So the people who were honoured in the culture of this city of Ephesus were the ones who could control spirits 
by commanding them, by naming other more powerful spirits to come out and move. And, you know, they were the ones who were held in high regard in Ephesus. And it wasn't just the Greeks in Ephesus who used to go around trying to command spirits and do these healings and exorcisms continually. It was also the Jews. Look at verse 13. It says, some Jews who went around driving out spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Just pause there for a minute. So you've even got these Jews who are involved in this type of exorcism, which is really sorcery. That The language here of evoking the, the name of certain things is just kind of classic um, indication of like pagan sorcery, where the idea is you're just trying to name a more powerful spirit to command a less powerful spirit to move on. And what they're doing here is they're hearing about this Paul fella and hearing that he preaches the name of Jesus. And they're thinking, well, let's try that name as well, because we want all the names of the most powerful spirits in our arsenal so we can use them to continue this awesome work that everyone respects us for but you'll notice there the language is um, they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who are demon possessed and they would say in the name of the Lord Jesus whom Paul preaches they don't even know Jesus he's the guy that Paul preaches so they but they're trying to use the name I command you to come out but it's it's not working it's not working for them. And when you read the next verse, four, verse 14 is an example about how some of the Jews who are involved in this type of, um, you know, exorcism work um, are failing at what they're doing. And it's a kind of, a, I think it's meant to be a slightly humorous story. Um, so look at verse 14. You get these um, seven sons of Sceva, and we're told that Sceva is a Jewish high priest. We don't hear anything about Sceva in any of the other biblical passages or the other um, you know, other writings at this time. He could have been a Jewish high priest. It's, it's unusual that he's not mentioned anywhere else. So it might be that he was a bit of a self-proclaimed high priest. Might be. It might be that he kind of, because he was good at doing these exorcisms in the community and well-respected, that he kind of claimed himself to be that and brought up his sons in this trade. Um, I think that might be what's happening. But anyway, these seven sons of his are involved in the same thing that he has been doing. And read there with me, these seven sons of Sceva, um, a Jewish high priest, who were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them. So you enter into a particular situation where they're attempting an exorcism. Okay? One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? So the evil spirit addresses them, and you see this in Jesus' ministry as well. The evil spirits know exactly who Jesus is as the Son of God, the ultimate powerful Lord being in the universe. They know who Jesus is, and they've heard about this guy named Paul as well, who seems to be accredited by Jesus in the line of the apostleship that's come from Jesus. But they say, but who are you guys? In other words, who are you to, name, to use the name of Jesus? Have you got the right to be using the name? It's almost as though, I think, the, Holy, the, the Spirit here knows they don't know Jesus. And so do they have any right to be trying to evoke the name of Jesus in their usual kind of spell casting or incantations that they do? It's, it's not going to work for them. And then you read what happens. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, 
overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So here are these, these fellas who have likely kind of held in high regard in the city of Ephesus. They're likely the ones everyone respects because they can do these powerful works. And here they are getting beaten up. One man beats up seven of them, strips them naked and beats them up so that they're bleeding and they find themselves needing to, to save their own lives, streak out of this house and go on a bit of an embarrassing nudie run through town for their own safety. And it was likely public because they had to kind of go outside. So this would have been a pretty embarrassing thing for them. And the people who heard about it and the people who saw it, it would have said something to them. It would have said that these men we hold in high regard because of their pagan sorcery that they use, these men who we think are awesome and are the ones who kind of have been the power brokers in our community, the ones we respect, the ones we follow, the ones we think are the ones to be our teachers, they just got beaten up. It seems as though this thing we've been following is not as legit as we thought or not as powerful as we thought. Look at the response the people have. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were, there's two responses. They're seized, they were all seized with fear and they held, and, and, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high regard. So there's fear and regard for Jesus. Fear, I think, because they're realising that what they put their trust in and that what they thought was powerful and what they thought was awesome just got beaten up and was shown to be weak and hopeless and maybe was shown to be a bit of a hoax actually and not the thing they should be putting their trust in. And they're fearful because they themselves, many, have put their trust in these very same pagan beliefs and, and, and maybe the fear is coming from the fact they're thinking, well, what do we do now? We believe in this stuff. And they're scared, and at the same time, they hold the name of the Lord Jesus in high regard. So the word gets out around the city. It's this pagan sorcery, this black magic, this worshipping of idols, the whole picture. Maybe it's not true, or maybe it's not real, maybe it's not powerful, maybe it's not it. And all that leads people in a particular direction. And in verse 18 there, we get some who respond in a particular way. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. Look at verse 18. When it says many of those who believed, I think that's meaning many of those who had already believed in Jesus. So they'd listened to Paul's teaching and they'd come to a level of belief in Jesus where they called themselves Christians. But they realised that though they'd come to belief in Jesus there's things still yet to be repented of. There's things they still need to confess. I think they'd come to believe in Jesus, but they're hanging on to their old pagan beliefs at the same time on some level. And they realise that now is the time to confess their sins. And so the way they do it there is it says that they, what does it say? Um, many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they'd done. So they come out in the open somehow and they say, we need to confess something. Whilst becoming followers of Jesus, we were still doing these other things. I was still casting spells. I was still trying to lift curses off my kids. I was still kind of trusting in the incantations and these 
scrolls that we thought held power. I was still kind of hanging on to my old pagan beliefs. I hadn't let them go yet, but I want to confess now that's what I've been doing. And maybe some of them have been doing it a little bit secretly. And there's nothing like being able to remove the power of a secret by just bringing it out in the open. You bring a secret sin out in the open and confess it to a brother or sister or to a, to a group and all of a sudden it loses a lot of its power. It's very helpful to confess sin. If you've got sin that's still hanging around unconfessed. But you'll notice there's two things they do. They confess their sin and then they remove the temptation to keep sinning. Yep. So the next thing they do, you see it there? Verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery, so some of them brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So they have a bonfire. They decide we're going to confess, we're going to turn away from that sin, and we're going to bring the articles of that way. We're going to bring the the, the temptations that we've had hidden in the cupboard that we've still been using. We're going to bring them out in the open, and we're going to put them in a big pile, and we're going to flick a match, and we're going to burn them. We're going to burn it and bury the ash in the backyard. We're done. We're done with it. It's, it's, It's striking, isn't it, this imagery? graphic it's it's the end yeah and and you go on and you read the next verse and you realize that what's noted here is the value of these scrolls see what it says there um when they calculated the value of the scrolls the total came to fifty thousand drachma and and if what's being spoken of there the drachma is your typical silver coin then that's typically at one day's wages for a laborer in that time if that's what been referred to as drachma and if that's the case you add that up and convert it to our day and age that it's probably something between four and five million dollars could be more or less but it's so we're talking about a pile of scrolls that it's about the value of four to five million dollars can you imagine some who had the scrolls and they're like yeah we're going to get rid of these and someone suggests let's burn them and they're like um this is a bit of a family heirloom that's got passed down to me from my dad and um I don't know, maybe I could sell it and get some money. And they're like, it needs to burn. <laughs> We're going to burn these things. And, 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 and in this, we have a beautiful image of the cost of turning to Jesus. The cost of turning away from old belief and old ways. It's going to cost us. And it's going to continue to cost us. And it's going to cost you in the place that you value most. And the Ephesians, kind of like us, value their finances. And that's why they calculated. They said, can someone just count up how many scrolls are there? They they figured it out. There was someone there who said, we're going to, this is huge. Someone was nervous. They counted and they estimated the cost. It was huge. Big sacrifice. There's three things really here that they do. They confess their sinful practices. They remove the cause of temptation, completely gone. And then there's kind of the, the backlash that comes from the community, which is good and bad, like verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So many more come to hear about Jesus because of this radical public act of the Christians. 
But then as you read on in the rest of chapter 19, you discover that many others in the city were really concerned about these Christians leaving their pagan ways because it was catching on around the city. And what it meant was particularly for the silversmith trade, who would be the ones who would make all the idols so people could go on worshipping the goddess Artemis. And you can read about this in the rest of the chapter. Their trade was struggling. So there was an economic effect on the city of Ephesus as people became Christians. And it caused a riot to happen in the city. It's quite spectacular. They're not happy. And this is what's going to happen off the tail end of Christians taking their beliefs seriously and repenting of sin. There's going to be growth for the gospel and there's going to be backlash. And you need to expect both as you continue to turn to Jesus and you consider letting go of something that you're still hanging on to tonight, there's going to be growth in you and people around you who are going to see you living for Jesus with more authenticity and there's going to be backlash. Some people in your family, some who, people who are close friends, when you let go of things, there's going to be backlash. They're not going to be happy. Yep. I want us to just think about those first two mainly and I want us to think now about us. And maybe you've already gone there anyway. Maybe there's something really obvious for you that you've been battling with for a while and you know you're hanging on to it. I want you to consider the image of a bonfire tonight. And I want you to consider that thing that you're still hanging on to as the scroll that needs to be burnt. I want you to ask yourself a question like this. And we're not good at, well, it's not easy to do this, self-reflection. But ask yourself these types of questions. What is Jesus leading me to let go of? What does Jesus want me to burn? What worldly beliefs are still in my heart, controlling decisions that I make and actions that I do? What sin do I need to confess? What temptation needs to be removed and burnt? You might know what it is, and if you do, you just camp out on that thing. And you figure out a way tonight to confess it. Privately, if you need to, but maybe there's someone you can confess it to. And you think about whether there's something tangible you can do to remove the temptation altogether. Now, for those of you who are sitting there thinking, well, I know what hers is, and I know what his is, and you're thinking about everyone else but yourself... And you haven't thought yet of anything that you might still be hanging on to, I've got a few ideas. Maybe one of these might be yours. I don't know. I'll give you, a few, I'll give you some examples. Um, I think there's a type of spirituality these days. There's a type of person who can be considered spiritual in our days. Um, but it's actually dishonouring to God and maybe you've got a bit of that spirituality hanging around in your life, you know, to, to believe in the power of crystals or stones or essential oils, to believe in the power of astrology or tarot or reiki, to believe in the ongoing power of superstitions in your life, like touching wood for good luck or wearing certain colours when your team's playing so you don't jinx them in their outcome. Like, we laugh about those things, but do you really think that's powerful? Or a more common, more acceptable one at the moment is this, to believe in the power of positive thinking. The thinking of aspirational thoughts. 
It's, it's been around for many years. It's been made more popular recently with the term manifesting. And, and I think even particularly during lockdown, all the social media influencers kind of really got manifesting going on. It's the latest internet wellness craze, really. Um, or scripting, where you write down something over and over again in order for that thing to come about and happen. Really, manifesting is just the practice of thinking a particular aspirational thought so that it can become a reality and believing that if you put it out there to the universe, that positive thought is going to come back as a real thing for you. Yep. It's had so many different incantations over the years. A few years ago, it came out in that book called The Secret. It's the same thing. Before that, it was like uh, the New Age law of attraction. It's been around forever. It's just modern day voodoo. And if you're a bit hooked into manifesting or scripting, that might be the thing you need to ditch because that's your crazy scroll you're hanging on to. That's the sorcery of a pagan world. Do you think saying certain things brings those things into existence? Because if you're a Christian and you've turned to the ultimate power in the universe, he says we can just talk to him through Jesus. And he says we can just come to him with our own words and our own hearts. And there aren't particular ways of praying so that you can twist him into giving you what you want. Just come to him. Trust that he's good. Bring your requests to him and trust him with what he gives you and what he doesn't give you. It's not manifesting. It's entering into and living in a relationship with a powerful, good God. It's prayer. You might be someone who says, I believe in Jesus and manifesting. You need to confess that. You need to ditch that. You need to burn that and you need to bury it in the backyard. And if, if there's some crystals or some stones or anything else that's accompanied with that, that's the thing you need to bury. That's the thing you need to chuck. And maybe some of you have got it still hidden away in the back cupboard there somewhere. You're just hanging onto it just in case. Ditch it. Give you another idea about what, what your scroll might be. And I think it's really common for all of us, or for many of us. Um, the love of money. Or, or more than that, the love of what money promises us. That it'll bring you a particular lifestyle, which will bring you particular pleasure, which will bring you maybe security. Maybe finances brings you security. And, and, and because you're still hanging on to that scroll, you end up using virtually all of your money in, in, in hope that it will bring you security and happiness because you're believing that lie. And you're very slow to be generous with your money and just give it away. Full allegiance to Jesus involves costly sacrifice. Is your commitment to Jesus reflected in your finances and what you do with your money? Or if you analyse what you're doing with your finances, does it reflect where your heart and your desires and your hope also is or really is? Giving generously and regularly and joyfully is part of what it means to come and put our trust in Jesus fully and to excel in the grace of giving. That's how we'd be encouraged in the New Testament, the gift of gospel generosity. It's been said before, sometimes the last part of a Christian to be converted is the hip pocket. We don't all carry wallets anymore, it's on your phone. But is the last part of your life to still be converted your finances? Is that the thing that's yet to be surrendered to Jesus so that you give towards him 
generously, faithfully, joyfully, radically. If Anchor is your church, and you've been here for a while, and you've been on the receiving end of ministry, and, you, and, and this, is, this is it, you want to be here, but you're yet to start giving to gospel ministry here, I do kind of want to say, why is that? might be because you're really struggling with your finances and you need help, in which case let us know and we'll, we'll see what we can do to help. But if it's just because you haven't got around to it, because you're being lazy, or if it's because you're concerned and, and really focused on the security that your finances bring and you, knew that, and you know that if you give it away then you've got less to bring security to you, maybe that's your scroll. Maybe that's the one you've got to burn. I do say that because as a functioning church family, we do need to keep doing whatever we can to excel in the grace of giving, to see the gospel go out. But I say it ultimately because full allegiance to Jesus means sacrificing costly. And maybe that's your thing. Maybe that's what you need to do. I'll give you two more examples. Maybe your scroll is sexual immorality, which is in many forms. Maybe it's secret sexual sins. If sexual immorality is described in the Bible, it's got many forms. It's basically sexual acts towards a person who you're not married to and they're of the opposite sex that you're married to. Yeah. Or sexual acts, um, you know, in, in that it's lust and it's in your mind and you're obsessed with it. Maybe that's your scroll. Maybe that's what you're hanging on to. You're someone who says, yeah, I've come to believe in Jesus, um, but, but, I'm but I'm still a, a progressive person when I consider sexuality and identity and expression. And you're kind of hanging on to that. And you're siding with the world with how it considers gender. And that's, that's your scroll. Or maybe it's like, ties to an old flame from a past life that you're somehow staying in contact with even though you're married now you're kind of keeping the letters in the cupboard or you're keeping the contact on your phone or you're keeping some way of keeping this other person in the wings somehow is is that the scroll is that the thing you need to ditch i don't know if it is confess it burn it you might actually need to burn your phone. You, need to, you might need to chuck your smartphone, get yourself a dumb phone, because a dumb phone is going to help you be godly. Give me a dumb phone any day. It's going to help me be more godly. Yep. Maybe that's your scroll. Final one. It's kind of more a subtle one. It doesn't really appear like sin very much. It's, 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 it's this area of comfort-seeking. Where do you go to find comfort and rest in your life? Because you're going to be stressed at times and you're going to be tired, you're going to be sick and you're going to be agitated and you're going to be angry and you're going to be anxious. So where do you go when you're feeling like that to seek calm and comfort and rest? Because your scroll might be a range of things that you always go to. Yep. All the while Jesus says, Come to me, I will give you rest. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Maybe you're hanging on to old ways to find rest. And it might be prescription meds or it might be alcohol or it might be binge eating or it might be binge watching or it might be, I don't know, all the things that can be good things but they can become God things that you worship and you go to for comfort and calm and security. Is Where do you go to seek comfort? Confess it, burn it. Come to Jesus. Now, my next page is blank because I didn't know what to do after that. I kind of figured, well, if, if the Lord's led people to consider the scroll they're hanging on to, I want to give you a moment privately to name what it is to God. And so maybe we just take a moment now, just in silence, in quiet, to bow your heads and acknowledge something to God that you need to confess and pray about it and then I'm going to make another suggestion. So let's just take a quiet moment to do that. Well, if you've just brought something to the Lord, you can go ahead and trust that he is gracious and he's merciful and he loves you. What do you do next? I'm going to suggest you do the two things that these guys did. Confess it openly somewhere to someone. Bring it out of the secret place. Watch it lose its power. You might want to pick a friend, a Christian friend who you trust, or a spouse or someone or your home group, or whatever. Just confess it. We don't really have anything to hide. Like, our righteousness is in Jesus. He's our saviour, not our own acts. So you can, you, we, can, we can admit our weaknesses to each other. It's hard, but we can do that because we've got a gracious saviour. Confess it. And secondly, burn it. Like, do something tangible, practical. Is, is there an actual thing that needs to be chucked? Or is there a symbol of that sin that you can burn? And, and I actually just, I just thought, you know, with the weekend away coming up, not next weekend, but the one after, I wonder whether we have a bit of a pagan burning ceremony, which sounds terrible, doesn't it? I'm joking. Um, I, we're going to have a bonfire and we're going to sit around that bonfire. And there's an opportunity, I reckon, to chuck something in if that's a cathartic experience for you that might be helpful. Maybe you could bring something along on that weekend. It's a symbol of what you're needing to let go of and just flick it in the fire. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking ahead and thinking, how can we do this together? We can't have a fire here to burn something tonight. But I wonder whether that might be an opportunity for you and whether we can take an opportunity on Saturday night after dinner, after what we do to sit around the fire and you might want to put something in there and have a little moment that maybe not everyone knows about, but maybe someone knows about. And we can do that together. There's a suggestion. Anyway. Let me pray and then we're going to sing again. Uh, Father God, we are grateful for your word to us. It's so challenging. You want all of us. You want every ounce of us. 
You want all our mind. You want all our belief system. You want us to take hold of you with both hands, both arms. You want us to let go. You want us to burn our scrolls. You want us to... You want our full allegiance and you are completely worthy of every ounce of us and every bit of worship we could give you in this life for our obedience. Our songs. Lord, you're worthy and would you work in us by your spirit to enable us to let go and continue to embrace you and trust you as the Lord and the giver of life. Amen.